Hey y'all, it's Jazzy. This is episode five, five of Whatever Works with Jasmine McDonald. I'm super stoked you're here. Today we have Dr. Sally on the podcast. She's gonna talk to us about all of the work she did to become a doctor, all of her qualifications and specialties, and then she's gonna answer some listener submissions. We cover really important topics like how long does sperm stay in the body? And can you overdose on seltzer? What's the likelihood that you would get popcorn lung from vaping? Things we all care about. So I hope you really enjoy it. I wanna forewarn you, the audio is messed up. So I have 500 listeners worldwide, eight different countries are represented. I can't believe it, it's wild. Um, after that point, 500 listeners plus Spotify will allow you to accept donations. So. If you can donate a dollar a month, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, something at all, I would so, so appreciate it. The reason being is this podcast takes forever to make and all the equipment was extremely expensive and I just so happen to get laid off. Not that you need my life story, but that's what's happening. And I need to soundproof the podcast studio, AKA the lab, AKA my guest room. Sally and I recorded this during a torrential downpour and it was raining like a motherfucker and you can absolutely tell. So if you want to change that, if you care about that at all, I really appreciate the donations in advance. If you can't donate, like, follow, share, and review whatever works, W-O-R-X pod, P-O-D on Twitter, whatever works, W Jasmine on Instagram, like, follow, share, and review it, share it with your friends. That's awesome. If you like the podcast, thank you so much. Let me know. If you don't like the podcast, I'm sorry, and I hope your day gets better. Until then, I'll see you guys on the other side. Okay, guys, picture this. You're on a three-day weekend. You're with your homies. You're with your partner. You only have a limited amount of dinners, of lunches, of time. And you're probably on a budget because of the economy that we're in. You cannot trust the influencers when you type in the hashtag for the city that you're in and you see the restaurants that they are eating, they are getting paid to do that. You're going through other review sites and you see restaurants that pop up immediately, five stars, four stars, those are paid ads. You have to download Bestie. Bestie is available on Android and iOS. It is user content. It is people that have gone to establishments, restaurants, tattoo parlors, hair salons, have had fantastic experiences and then posted them. Bestie goes through and validates those claims and only the best of the best are on the app so you know that you can trust it and the time that you spend in these cities will be well spent. That is B-E-S-T-I dot U-S, B-E-S-T-I dot U-S. Brought to you by our good friends at Bestie. Hi guys, you're listening to Whatever Works with Jasmine McDonald. This is episode four. We're going to get into some medical questions with a local internal medicine physician. And her name is Sally. Sally, hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. We're so excited to have you. So talk to us a little bit about your history with, you know, what made you want to become a physician? I was raised by two uh, basically scientists, and I honestly don't think I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I knew it would be something sciencey. Um, and then I think in high school, I read um, The Hot Zone, of all things, the book about the Ebola outbreak in Virginia. It made me realize that like that was interesting to me, and like the, the, the being a detective and trying to figure out what's wrong with people was kind of what I wanted to do. So it wasn't the I want to help people thing that everyone else says. I mean, that was part of it, but I think that I just found it interesting. And so, and, and being raised by scientists did help. Have that, like, I was kind of in the science background, but that's, that's what I decided in high school. And then I went to college expecting um, to take all the classes and do all the things. And I guess if it hadn't worked out, I wouldn't have been a doctor. But, um, but yeah, that was, it was really just in the end that wanting to be a detective and like solve problems and figure out what's wrong and then, you know, make things better. Awesome. That's great. Okay, so you so were you pre-med as your undergrad? Yes. Okay, and then you went straight to medical school. Yes, I have not taken a break <laughs> since since I was in preschool is what I say. Yeah, I was yeah, say, since not, I was out of the womb. There were no gap years or gap. I mean, in, in hindsight, I think I wish I had. Um, having met people in medical school who did that, like they had more life experience than I did. Yeah. Um, I've had that now. I've had life experience now, but like I really was basically in school from age four to age 25 so wow yeah <laughs> so you graduated from undergrad where would you go I went to Georgetown in Washington okay DC. yeah you're so you're a genius no <laughs> <laughs> I think you're being humble okay that's fantastic and then where did you go to medical school I went back home to Alabama to the University of Alabama School okay. of Medicine. roll tide yes roll tide do you feel that way roll tide um well so actually the School of Medicine is actually UAB University of Alabama, Birmingham, okay. but it's called the University of Alabama School of Medicine, but my husband went to actual Alabama, so yeah, I mean, I'm an Alabama fan by default. Is that where you're from? Yeah. Alabama? Yeah. Okay, cool. I didn't know that. Yep. Awesome. So when, how long does it take for you to like pick like your specialty? So you go through medical school, like the first two years are all in class, like there's no... And it's four extra years, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and so it's like four years of college, four years of medical school. The first two years, uh, at least when I did it, um, were all, all classroom. So really everyone takes the same classes. Um, and then the third and fourth year are clinical. And so that's when you go through all your rotations and kind of decide what you like. Okay. And people typically have an idea of what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, 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 at that point had, initially I had wanted to be an infectious disease specialist because of that, the hot zone. Yeah. And I realized that would involve... Oh, so sorry. How old were you when you read that? 16 or 17. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dedication. <laughs> well, when I respect that. Well, when your parents are a microbi- microbiologist, it's, it's not hard to find books like that in your house. But, um, but I think I'm going to stray a little bit here. I think I'm envious, lovingly envious of like knowing, having a knowing of what it is that you want to do. Like I've had dreams of certain things and then I'm like, well, maybe I want to be an attorney. Maybe I want to be a therapist maybe I want to be an actor you know like I just it's I think that's awesome that you've like were destined to do you feel like you're destined to be um, a doctor maybe I mean I was driven yeah um definitely driven uh, but yeah I mean I, I like it I can't imagine doing anything else yeah at this point and I don't know if that's because 
I've put so much time into it that there's like no turning back. <laughs> or possibly if, if if it truly is a calling, I think it is somewhat. It has to be somewhat of a calling to go through all the the rigor and the the like the grueling nature of the training like that. That has there has to be a calling in there somewhere. One hundred percent. Yeah. So when you do your clinical rounds and you know forgive me for my ignorance here <laughs> what types of medicines do you study like in medical school yeah like when you're trying to pick your concentration yeah. essentially yeah. so basically the like there's i think there's six or eight i have to count count them like internal medicine is one which is adults basically just adults um uh and primarily like things that don't involve surgery you know basically mm-hmm. you know uh pneumonia, heart failure, you know, kidney failure, like that, that kind of stuff that it more involves thinking, ordering tests, evaluating, like, like trying to understand those tests, um, prescribing treatment, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so internal medicine, pediatrics is the same thing in kids, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, OBGYN is babies. Um, and delivering, delivering right. babies. Sorry, delivering babies. Sure, sure. Yeah. And gynecology. Yeah. Um, psychiatry is being a psychiatrist. Neurology is one um, that's more like strokes and seizures and things like that. Um, family medicine was a rotation when I was in training, and that's more, that's when you think of like a GP. That's, that's okay. I mean, an internal medicine doc can be a GP, mm-hmm. um, but family medicine, they see kids, they see adults, some of them still deliver babies. Um, so they're kind of, they do a lot, a lot of everything. Um, they do a little, sorry, a little bit of everything, you know, a little bit, sometimes a lot about everything. Whereas, like, internal medicine docs don't deliver babies, so. Sure. But um, you could deliver a baby in a 911. I've done it when I was a med student. But oh, yeah, you did? When, uh, yeah, med student, med school, Did yeah. you love doing it? What was it like? I almost did OBGYN, actually. Really? I, I think it's because it was my first clinical rotation, and it was so nice to, like, not be in the classroom. And so it was, you know, like, the first thing you do that's not classroom, you're like, oh, wow, this is great. But it just wasn't. Too much surgery. I don't like surgery. Okay. But the other the other rotation I didn't mention was surgery. So any, okay. and then that's that I think that's it. I don't know how okay. that was, but yeah, sur- so general yeah. surgery, and then you can do all kinds of specialties from that. But those are basically the the main rotations you do in third year med school, and then you kind of know from that what you might want to do, and then fourth year med school you pick kind of your rotations based on what you want to do, because you're also applying for residency at that point. Okay. And so I just I think I did internal medicine like in the winter time of my third year, so like December-ish. And I knew at the time, I said, that's how I become an infectious disease physician. I didn't realize that it would require three years of residency and three years of fellowship. So I decided, mm, no, I'm good. Damn. <laughs> so that's, so it's, I mean, that's a lot of school. Yes. So I ended decided internal is best. Well, I actually, I did, I did internal medicine and pediatrics is a combo residency that's four years instead of three. Yeah. You basically do like three months of internal medicine, three months of pediatrics. For four years. Yeah. So you get two years of each. I have not practiced pediatrics since I finished residency because it's just there weren't jobs to do both at the time. And honestly, whatever. So it's just yeah. an extra year of my life that I spent. <laughs> a little yeah. bit different perspective than um, an, a regular internist would have. Okay. Yeah. So it's called internist. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. cool. And you have two children. Yep. Right. When you delivered, when you gave birth to those children, do you feel like, and maybe it's a broader question, do you feel like you get different care because you are a doctor or maybe you come in knowing more? Um, no, because honestly, we're very kind of siloed in what we do kind of, you know, I mean, I did an OBGYN rotation and I, I think at times I, you know a little bit, 
you know enough to be dangerous and mm -hmm. to make yourself nervous. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Like I remember checking my blood pressure like when I was almost full term, just like worried that my pressure was going up and they were going to have to like take me to C-section, all these things like, you know, whereas a lot of um, non-medical people wouldn't, they would just go to their OB and do what they needed to do. So um, I think it's more, and I don't think I got treated differently. I mean, I delivered at the hospital I work at, so... But still, that's a whole separate part of the hospital. So I don't. Did they know you were a doctor? Yeah, because they followed me from the beginning of my pregnancy, and this, that practice actually has cared for most of the people in my group that have had children. Yeah. So. Okay, so your residency was four years long. You said yes. Okay, talk to us about that. Um. So, and that process is when you're a, a fourth year medical student, you apply, you go on all these interviews, um, and depending on what you want to do, you have to do a ton of interviews. My Specialty was not, it's not super competitive. Like to get a, a, to get the place you want, you have to be competitive, but, um, but it's not like ENT or I'm trying to think of other ones, radiology, dermatology. Like those are all very highly competitive, um, because they pay better mm -hmm. and the lifestyle is better. Um, basically in the end you don't work weekends. You don't, you know, like you, you have more control over your time, but in my case, uh, so I, I didn't do a ton of interviews, but I ended up um, at Chapel Hill. Um, that's how I ended up here, as opposed to Alabama. Sure. Um, okay. So, uh, so yeah, residency is mine was four years. Most of them are at least they're all at least three. Mm -hmm. um, the surgical ones are longer um, because they need more training. But yeah, so it basically is like four years of being paid less than minimum wage. I was gonna <laughs> say yeah. So and working are, your ass off. So those are. Hardly paid internships, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I was, I think, I mean, you get, you got a little bit more money each year, but in the end, like, my husband, when he didn't have it, I, I got married fourth year of medical school, so, and he didn't have a job when we moved up here, so initially we were, like, scraping it together. That's mm -hmm. insane. Yeah, but then he, he got a job, and then it was fine. Um, of course, but yeah. it's insane that you've gone through so much school. Yep. And they pay you, what, they're paying you seven bucks an hour? Well, I don't even know if you, if, because, I mean, we were working at least 80 hours a week. And I so was what does that look like? 13 hours I'd shift, have to do that. I'd have to do the math. But basically, so it's changed because there's been all these work hour regulations. And okay. I sound like an old person. Back in the day, back in my day. Back in my day. Yes, back yeah. in my day, um, we were on call every fourth night. Like, so we were in the hospital every fourth night. Like, so we were there for 30 plus hours. Oh, okay. Um, and then you, and they had to actually like restrict like, we, could, we were supposed to leave at 30 hours. It was often 33, 34 hours. And go home and sleep and come back the next day as an intern. Um, so, are you expect, you're expected to be awake working for 30 hours straight. That's yep. impossible. Yep. It's changed since then. But um, How is that? Okay. It's Well, so, and there's call rooms, and there were times that you, you could sleep. You can nap and stuff, right? Um, theoretically. Theoretically. Uh, it depends on how sick the patients are, you know, like, what what the emergency room is doing. Like, do you, are you admitting people? Like, yeah. So why it, do you think it's because it's really hard to be a doctor and not many people make it there and that's there's like a, a lack of physicians like okay like why is it that bad why is it why is that the standard why is that the because it's been listen I don't want someone that's been awake for 27 no, hours doing surgery no, on me no. yeah so I, I don't know honestly but I mean if you talk the older you get like I mean I'm, I'm several years out what was that? I finished in 2009 so I'm like 13 14 years out from residency at this point but even like right when I started is when they started putting all these regulations on. But you talk to doctors older than me and they're like, yeah, I used to spend 40 hours in the hospital in a row or like, you know, and that still happens periodically. I think it's not supposed to. 
but they have restricted things down over time. I don't know. I, I think it was, some of it was the, this is just my, my opinion, but the, the doctors who are near retirement now are like, well, I did it. So they need to do it. Sure. Um, but then I think, you know, the hazing. Kind yeah. Of it's kind of hazing. Yeah. And Absolutely. honestly, it's the way it's been, it's always the way it's been done. So they've changed it. I don't even know how it's been changed at this point. I know when I was in training, the interns stopped staying overnight. They did like 16 hour days and then they, yeah. That's crazy. And so you would only stay overnight for like your intensive care unit rotation or some rotation where you really needed to be there to like actually learn how things happen. Is it constantly going, crushing, looking at files, or is it like you guys are by the water cooler kicking it? Every um, once in no, a while? it's basically in my in the the like the, the specialty I did. Basically, you you get there if I remember early. I don't remember what time and pre round on all your patients, see all the patients, look at their blood work, look at you know their vital signs, all that. And then you go and you walk around for two and a half, three hours with the attending and what is an ground. Attendant? So like I'm an attending now. Okay. So basically it's a doctor that's out of training. Like on call doctor, yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay. And so you, you spend three, three and a half hours rounding on those patients with and there's teaching that happens and all those things. And then you spend the next several hours doing all the work that like writing the notes and putting in the orders, making the phone calls, getting the patients discharged, and then you start admitting patients mm-hmm. from the emergency room and that's your day. So there's it's there's not a lot of downtime. That's insane. But there are rotations and residency that are not inpatient. Yeah. Like there are outpatient rotations that are a lot easier. Okay. This is totally random and a question that just popped into my mind. But talk to me about like forensic, because you said you were wanting to be an investigator. Yeah. Like could you be everyone who listens and anyone that knows me knows I love law and order SVU. <laughs> there's a lot of forensic me- medical professionals. So what it tell, can you just tell us about that? Do you know anything about that? Um, I mean, there's forensic psychiatrists, um, that, sure. that you hear about, like they give testimony and in, in trials. They'll there's, like make sure like Ted Bundy is fit to stand yeah, trial. Yeah. Or, or try to okay. like figure out the, what kind of, you know, mental disorders they may How have. Insane or, are, yeah. Do they know the difference between right and wrong? Yeah. That sort of stuff. And then there's forensic pathologists that actually do like autopsies and okay and that kind of thing. Beyond that, I think that's it. Okay. I don't. I can't think of anyone else who would be forensic. So if you're a forensic pathologist, you are a doctor. Yeah. So pathologist. So that's that is a specialty that pathology um, is a specialty. Yeah. It's okay. a, It's it's very easy to get into because it's not very popular. Most of the time, they um, they're the ones that like if you get a biopsy done, they're the ones that look at it under the microscope and interpret what it is. Some of them do autopsies. They kind of run labs and hospitals, you know. So it's a very cush thing, but it's also not very popular. Because no one wants to do autopsies. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it 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 didn't really interest me. Like I did well in it in in, in mm-hmm. school because I liked all the the stuff. But like I, you like macabre stuff. Yeah. But yeah. I, I did not. I wanted to actually see living patients. Every damn day, it would be a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You wanted to help people yeah. while they were still able to receive the help. Yes. Yes. But well, we, well, if I don't say it yet, I'll say it now. Thank you for your service. This is a Thank lot you. of work. Thank you. And you're, you know, it definitely is a calling for sure. And I thought about being a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. which I think I would be okay at that. But I really struggle in math. Mm-hmm. in science like I worked my ass off for a C in chemistry in high school mm-hmm. like I really applied myself I passed was on the dean's list whatever to get a journalism degree no problem I could do it drunk with my eyes closed yeah. you know but when it comes to math and science I I do struggle because uh, my brain just doesn't work that way mm-hmm. um and so I didn't want to go to med plus I'm, I don't I'm not a huge scholastic <laughs> 
academic. So, but yeah, I mean, going to medical school for that was, it was too much for me. So I just, yeah. you know, did something different, but it's, it's not lost on me and I'm sure it won't be lost on the listeners that you've gone through hell and high water mm-hmm. to be able to be qualified to, to do that. So thank you so much. Not a problem. It's what I, I love to do. Yeah. So talk to us about the medical field now, and then we can maybe get into some questions from the listeners that they've submitted. In the past few years, medicine has changed. I mean, this is not the medicine that I thought I was signing up for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still, I still take care of patients. I still get to solve mysteries. There's a definitely since since the pandemic and all that. It's definitely even before that. There's a lot of a lot of things that that are going on that aren't really. It's not what I went to school for. A lot of paperwork. A lot of uh, clerical dealing, yeah, clerical stuff. Dealing with difficult difficult families and patients and honestly I think now medical school I, I believe that there's a part of the MCAT which is the medical college admission test like mm-hmm. the LSAT for like the bar school. yeah mm-hmm. like the the thing you have to take to like get into medical school there's a whole part of it about like personality stuff and dealing with people and like that was never a, a thing when I took the MCAT it was all math science physics you know so is that I think that kind of could be good right yeah no it's very good I like, think, don't be a dickhead just because yeah. you have a white coat doesn't mean you can exactly. be psychotic. Exactly, and, and, and learn tools to, to actually deal with these people because, I mean, it's the world is a different place than it was. And we're in a heightened state of stress. Yes. Like, I will put myself in physical danger before <laughs> I, like, to the absolute, I mean, you've heard some of my medical stuff. Like, I'll take it to the 11th hour before I go <laughs> get checked out because I get, like, weird about you know it's the insurance is overwhelming like you know why are things we can get into questions later like why are some things covered why why not and then i've had personally medical trauma Mm -hmm. and people i care very much about like i've also had like horrendous things happen because people make mistakes and so i i will avoid the doctor like the plague (laughs) and my grandmother was like old scottish land army like she didn't like love it. She thought there was like a cure for cancer when they're and they were hiding it. Like, <laughs> yeah, she was a little conspiracy. Yeah. But yeah, but basically, like separate from like the clerical stuff and the issues, I think it's the business of medicine has gotten so complex mm. that a lot of what we, the decisions we make, the things we we do are kind of the undercurrent is money, mm-hmm. um, not our money, but it's like so. What I do now just to kind of explain that is, you know, as an internal medicine, you can become an outpatient doctor, like a primary care doctor. Um, you can go to fellowship and do, which is the more years of training, which is like infectious disease, nephrology, like oncology. What's nephrology? Kidneys. Kidney specialist. Why yeah. do you want to do that? People love it. I don't know. Really? There's a, there's a lot of people have find their own little niche, but there's any organ in the body, there's a specialty for it. Cardiology, neurology, you know, I mean, there's, there's a pulmonology, which is lungs. You yeah, know, like, yeah. So, so that's... I could have done that. I did not because I, at the time I just didn't want to be underpaid and overworked anymore. Amen. Um, so I decided so you can be outpatient, you can go to fellowship, or you can be inpatient, and it's called being a hospitalist. And so that's what I am is a hospitalist, which is basically an internist who works in the hospital. Okay. Um, sometimes family practice docs do that. Our group is all internists. There are pediatric hospitalists as, as well, but at the time that I was applying for jobs, that the combination job didn't exist. Okay. At the time, so I was like, well, medicine hospitalists make more money. Honestly, I just needed money. Hell yeah, get it, girl. You've done the work. So, right. so I, um, so that's what I do. So basically, 
you know, I, I work at a hospital, I, it's shift work, these are 12 hour shifts. We basically have a list of patients that we're assigned every day mm -hmm. and we go see them in the hospital and take care of them. Like we see COVID patients, we see pneumonia, we see heart failure, we see kidney failure, we see, um, we, we have a lot of specialists that help us. We talk to families, we talk to social work, you know, we try to, we always say that the first thing we think of when somebody comes in the hospital is how are they going to get out of here? <laughs> Basically, we try sure. to like make that plan in our head of like, where are they going to go? How are they going to get out of here? It's a lot of coordination of care. So that's what I've been doing. And so it, you round, you round, and it doesn't take three and a half, four hours like it did in training because you're, you're it. You know, mm -hmm. I, some places have like teaching services and things and I don't, we don't have, we don't have residents. Um, okay. where I work so it's really just so like, you don't have a shadow it's just you yeah yeah so, I mean we 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 and that's what I wanted when I finished residency I'm like I want to know that I did the work and then it got done like mm -hmm. I don't want to have to worry about looking over somebody's shoulder you know so I see 16 to 18 patients a day wow. um, in the hospital and kind of deal with all their medical stuff talk to the consultants talk to the families get them out of the hospital when I can and and then you know write all the notes do all the paperwork and then that's my day. So is that post ER? Yes. Okay. So if somebody rolls into the ER and has a heart attack, yeah. they're going to go to cardiology actually. They're not going to go to our service, but <laughs> just um, for example's sake, there's some 911. Yeah. They go to the ER. Yeah. And, and once things have calmed down, they go yeah, to Yeah, once the ER stabilizes them, then they'll call us and say, "Hey, this patient needs to be admitted." So we admit them, we put in orders, like all we treat we treat them the whole time they're there. We're basically their primary care doctor in the yeah. hospital. Right. Because years ago, the primary care doctors used to take care of patients in the hospital, and now it doesn't financially make sense, mm -hmm. and it's just not safe because they they can't be there because they're in their own office, you know. So now we admit everything um, for them, and then when they leave the hospital, we send them back to the primary care doctor. So we don't have clinic or anything like that. Okay. So that's what that's what my day looks like now, and it's you know it's not every day; it's about half the month. So. Um, but basically, so I, you know, work for a hospital and this is universal, basically that the, the business of medicine has kind of lost the goal and in, in my opinion of patient care. Um, and so that's, and it's happened over the last several years, but really since COVID, cause I think everyone's struggling financially and not, not the providers, not the physicians, but the, the, the hospitals, they're trying to figure out how to cut corners. They're trying to figure out how to get more out of less. And it's just, it's getting significantly worse and there's more and more and more patients coming and so we're just uh why do you think that is um initially it was because people ignored or refused to go to the hospital for two years or the doctor for two years because they were scared to go anywhere you know so we saw a lot of people come in you know after the initial covid surge that had cancer that was undiagnosed that had kidney failure you know that had things oh that things God. that went that went further than they Untreated. would have because oh. they were afraid to go to the doctor or they couldn't get in you know, because initially they weren't even seeing patients in person, you know. So we saw that. Um, you don't think about that. Yeah. We saw I, that. That's actually been more of a problem than COVID. And then people who lost their jobs, couldn't afford their medicines, you know, ended up getting sick, sicker than they would have been otherwise because they couldn't take their medicines. Country, yeah. 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 It's not good. But um, so we try as, as physicians to take care of the patient, to focus on doing what's best for the patient. Unfortunately, the people that kind of control the money and the, the direction of the hospital are, uh, are focused on finance, you know, and so that's, that's kind of a struggle right now is the, the business of medicine. That's something that doctors lack is training in business. None of us, unless you go get your MBA, really understand the business of medicine. I've, I've had to learn. Do you think they do that on purpose? I don't know. Maybe. 
I didn't used to be as important, and honestly, a lot of people used to have their own practice, and they had to understand that. Mm-hmm. But now we just do our work, and there's people elsewhere that are managing that. But those people make decisions that affect us. That they in don't... turn affect the patients. That yes, care. yes. Sure. So, so yeah. So that's that's something that I've had to learn over the last few years is how to interpret how to how to like put things in the the framework of finances, but also try to also like keep keep administ- the administrators understanding the clinical side of it and understanding that like this affects patients. When you make me see 20 patients a day, that affects the patients because they're not getting optimal care, but they just see it as you can see 20 patients a day and we can pay one less doctor. So that's kind of the struggle, like in my little world, um, but basically trying to do more with less. Do you think they're getting, they're strapped for cash or is it a greed thing? No, there's, they're strapped for cash. Definitely. I mean, I, I think, Relatively speaking, they're fine. If, if you were to like actually look at the numbers, it's just they're doing not they're not doing as well as they were before, and so they're scared. And and again, I'm not I'm not on the business side of medicine. I go to meetings involving the business side of medicine, but it's clear they're trying to cut corners wherever they can, and it's just it's hard because it, it's taken. We see the direct effect of it because we know when we see 20 patients a day, we can't we can't we can basically keep people alive. Is, is what, what we basically say is we're trying to keep people alive, <laughs> not screw anything up, and try to get people out of the hospital when we can. But if once you get to that kind of level of, of 20 patients in 12 hours, it's just not it's not safe. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of what we're dealing with. So it's 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 a lot of there's a lot of administration. There's been a lot of administrative bloat over the years. Like if you look at the amount of dollars spent to pay to pay like healthcare providers versus the amount of dollars um, spent to pay administrators, it's like, it's ridiculous. Right. The growth of the number of administrators in medicine right now is insane. Why? I don't know. They don't, why do they need all the red tape and bureaucracy? I, mean, I think, I think some of it is the government has all these regulations. So somebody has to be keeping track of that while the patients are being cared for. Sure. But it's, um, it's hard because we're the ones generating the revenue, mm-hmm. um, for them, but they're the ones Cutting costs yes, for you. Basically. How do you become an administrator? <laughs> um, get an MBA. Hmm. Um, and I mean, you can be a doctor and become an administrator, but I think a lot of, and there certainly are doctors that are administrators, but I think they're the ones that understand both sides. How do you relax and take some, <laughs> seriously, how do you take care of yourself when you are not? Exercise. That's something that I've, I've, developed over time. I wasn't like a gym rat or anything in high school, even college. Like it took a lot for me to get to the gym. But like I, I think in medical school is where I learned, like if there, if the gym is close to my house, I will go, mm-hmm. you know? So I always made sure to find a gym close to my house. And then, you know, as I, you know, got out of residency and was able to afford things, like I, I, I finally bought a Peloton. So I have a Peloton and that, that, that I can do. Sometimes it means I get up at five thirty in the morning and, and ride before I have to be at work at seven. But that, and then I also took up running too, which you can do at five thirty in the morning as well. Mm-hmm. So really, exercise is a big thing. And then travel. My family likes to travel. Okay. Yeah. So and you have two sons, two daughters. Two uh, daughters? One of each. Oh really? Yes. Okay. Cool. Yes. Cool. Well, um, let's take a quick break, and then we can get into some um, listener questions. Is okay. that cool with you? Yep. Okay. Okay, we're back. 
So we're going to get into some listener questions and see what we just love your, your thoughts and opinions. So first question from one of my listeners is, what should I do if I am concerned about potential cognitive decline? So basically it, it, it depends on how old, how old the person is you're talking about, what other medical problems they have, what's actually going on. Like, are they forgetful? Are they like uh, making things up, hallucinating? Um, but if you're just kind of talking about in general, like dementia type situation where you forget things and short-term memory gets worse and all that, really it's um, first you would talk to your primary care doctor and then I would, uh, you can do neurocognitive testing. Most neurologists will do it. It's like a four hour battery of tests. That, that's basically what you do and, and they can put, put you on medication to help with that. Like really it's, it's medication that it doesn't really, it's supposed to slow the process, but it doesn't necessarily, there's nothing to cure it. What would those tests look like? Um, really, I, I've never seen them done, but they're, they're literally like sitting down at a table and like asking questions and interpreting things. And Who's I mean, the president? Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, that kind of thing. And, and I think it, it gets way more complicated than that, but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it's, it's called neuro, neurocognitive or neuropsychiatric testing mm-hmm. that most neurologists will do in their office. Mm-hmm. It takes like four hours. But there's not like a test. You can't get an MRI that'll show dementia or cognitive decline. Pretty much anybody as they get older has a little bit of it. Um, some people get it sooner than others. But if you're if you're 80 or 90, you probably have a little bit of it, and you may not even know it until you get sick or something else happens, and then you kind of it kind of unmasks itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really, I would talk to a primary care doctor and then consider neurology. This is an off the cuff question. Do you think heavy drinking and drug use, even if years have gone by where the person is totally clean from that stuff, do you think that has an effect on other things like maybe autoimmune diseases or trouble sleeping or any sort of kind of weird? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely can, it can affect your brain. I mean, at the, at the time you're doing those things, it, it can it's literally um, poisoning your brain. Yeah, I mean, it's people people who have severe history of severe alcohol use, even if it's been twenty years, they are going to be at higher risk of having dementia or some other kind of psychiatric problem because you're basically while you're drinking or drugging, you're suppressing your brain and then um, causing damage in your brain. You're pickling your brain basically, and so yeah, I definitely can can cause that. I, I don't know of any like direct correlation between alcohol and drugs and autoimmune disease but it certainly could mm-hmm. like it, it just it, it causes harm in all of your organs right yeah how much harm no kidding <laughs> okay cool um so the cognitive decline question get testing done and that's it really to see what's going on and you could get on a medication that slows the process if those tests come back with a positive response for yeah. cognitive decline yeah okay great do you feel pressure to take your own advice? Oh gosh, um, doctors are the worst patients. I mean, really? Literally, yeah. We will work when we're super sick. I mean, with COVID, we we've been told obviously we we've kind of stopped doing that. But I can't tell you how many times I've worked with a fever pre-COVID. Sure. Um, the only thing that we don't work is like if we're vomiting and having diarrhea, like we will call out. But yeah, like it, we are the worst patients. We ignore symptoms. We. I remember I had a colleague who had she had like shoulder pain and she didn't know she didn't know what it was and she just kept working 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 turns out she had like a gallbladder issue that like she completely ignored and then one night finally kind of 
caused her to end up going to the ER and having her gallbladder taken out. But like we we ignore symptoms in the shoulder. Yeah, it's referred from the gallbladder. It's the nerves that supply the gallbladder also supply like the skin back here, and so it's preferred pain. That's so wild. Yeah. So right right shoulder pain could be your gallbladder. You should also have abdominal pain too. But does it kind of demystify? I'm sure. Do you feel like we're all kind of like a sack of skin functioning the same sort of way? Like it almost demystifies the human being from the body itself. Like, are we just like this functional engine? (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, I mean, physically, yes. I mean, I still think, I mean, they don't teach this in medical school. I still think there is a soul and all the, you know, all of that. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, to understand the inner workings, you have a different perspective on things. How powerful is your mental state for your body? Um, like I can convince myself that I have a symptom mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden I'm getting very warm, mm-hmm. like in the placebo effect, like how holistically does the brain and what our thought patterns, like can we anxious and worry our way into sickness? Like, yeah. Oh, you definitely can. And there's, there's actually, you know, disease states that are um, basically your body um, manifesting stress in a physical way mm-hmm. um, that are legit disease states like uh uh they used to be called pseudo seizures are now called non-epileptic convulsions but basically it's like people that have they look like they're having a seizure but you look at their brain waves and there's no like seizure activity there's no electrical activity going on to cause a seizure so but that's it's not that they're faking anything like that it's literally like that's the way their body is manifesting stress wow. um you can even have like if your arm stops working and you think you're having a stroke that's called a conversion disorder where your body's all of a sudden like you know, manifesting stress in that, in that way. That's almost proof of a soul because the mind being separate from the brain, my feelings and fears and anxieties that are emulating in my mind are, but are not being reflected in my actual brain waves. Like Mm -hmm. that's a powerful, that's proof of emotional control over your body. Yeah. And I think, I mean, your, your, your thought, your mental state definitely contributes to how you feel. It can, um, contribute to like worsening of a chronic physical illness if you're you know not mentally okay it can contribute to that so yeah definitely there's a link there how often do doctors make mistakes to the extent where there's some sort of malpractice I don't know like an actual answer to that it's hard to know I don't know I, I don't think I've ever done that at least I don't know yet but it happens well you're perfect though no 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 one's perfect but I've just not been sued yet. Um, <laughs> sure. But yeah, no, it um, it does happen, and you hear about it. But in the end, there's typically, the, the cases that I've heard about, it's there's, there's rationale behind it. Like, mm-hmm. there's a reason something happened. It wasn't just egregious. You know, you, you, know, you hear about, like, Dr. Death. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. A surgeon. Like, that's not common. That is not common. Well, he was, like, a sociopath, like, yeah, Dr. Mangle type of psychopath. Yeah, like, he, he didn't know what he was doing and just kept operating and causing harm. Oh, my God. That's not typical. But, but certain- is there, like, more acute levels of negligence, maybe? Probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure, of course. But, again, it just depends on the situation. But uh, I don't know an actual number. And what is the, like, checks and balances process around that? Um, so I can tell you where I work, you know, there's there's kind of a peer review process and if there's some, something that happens that seems to be out of the norm of what should happen or there's a there's a patient harm that happens and it's reviewed in this committee and they kind of go back to the 
the physician that involved that it was involved in the case and they you know they kind of it's it's a, it's a group of I'm not on the committee but a group of do doctors and other providers at the hospital that kind of review the case objectively and kind of figure out was there something that was actually done inappropriately or not and then they'll take it back to the doc that was involved and talk to them about it is there like a see something say something sort of thing yeah. like a neighborhood watch like if you saw a doctor that you work with as a internist hospitalist that was like under the influence or some other really egregious thing yeah like no like, we would definitely say something are you legally yeah. mandatory okay, i don't know if it's mandated to report i mean i think if, if something bad were to happen and it was found out that we knew that we would be liable for it sure but in the end like there definitely there is a a, a network a structure for that like you if you're concerned about someone you go to the boss and talk to the boss and they talk to that person and kind of there's a, a whole process did you know that every adult at least in north carolina is a mandate legally mandated to report any sort of child or elder abuse yep i didn't know that yep i went through interact training which is a um of a shelter in the mm -hmm. area and yeah. they taught us that i'm like yeah. wow because on your 18th birthday, no one's like, yeah. you'd think that when there's some sort of document that's given, I guess you get your license when you're 16, mm -hmm. but when's the 18, who tells you that? Yeah. You know, by the way, you are legally, yeah. I think that is important. It is. Carries it is. a heavier weight. Yeah, I mean, you would think as a human being, you would want to report it, but again, if it's, yeah, yeah you're right. Like, it's not widely known that that's legally required and then you know the pressure of like well don't please don't call the cops on me or please don't call the cops you know he didn't mean it he's mm -hmm. not always like this like yeah. a like a wife kind of yeah. that we've all seen and heard of those stories and it would be I, I think a better more ironclad like listen this isn't personal this is my legal yeah. obligation yeah to the child okay how can I improve my REM cycle I don't know a, like a definitive medical answer to that question but I mean I think what I would say is, you know, don't drink, don't, you know, um, don't watch a bunch of TV before you go to bed, don't try try to limit your screen time before you go to bed, and I'm guilty of screen time like crazy. Oh, yeah, this is just the advice, not yeah. that we you just said yeah. you don't take your own advice. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I don't either. <laughs> yeah, I don't take my With my advice. medical degree, I also don't. Yeah, either. but yeah, I mean, I think really just kind of sleep hygiene, trying to, like, go to bed at the same time each night, you know, I, beyond that, I don't know, like, it's funny with all these fitness trackers and things you can look at your sleep you know and and looking at mine I'm like is that enough REM sleep like I don't it's not that much how much are we supposed to have I don't know you don't know I don't know the answer to that question yeah I'm kind of going rogue here what is a REM cycle um it's rapid eye movement is what REM stands for basically it is the part of the sleep cycle where you're basically paralyzed like your body doesn't mm -hmm. move and I guess physically you would see like people's eyes like they're closed, but you could see them moving. But I think it's where your body kind of processes a lot of things. Your brain processes your day. You tend to have more vivid dreams during that. Um, so that that would be my, and I could be completely wrong about that, but um, I don't think you need a ton of REM sleep. It does help. It's very restorative, but I think just deep sleep is good too. Mm -hmm. And like with fitness, I know working out <laughs> and um, lifting a lot, sleep is like heals your body. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, this has been asked by multiple people. Is seltzer as hydrating as water? Yes. I mean, I, I would, I don't, it's just water with carbon dioxide in it. I don't think that's true. Really? 
I don't feel as hydrated. Well, I mean, when I'm exercising, I don't drink seltzer. I well, drink water. And, and my pee is not clear when I'm only drinking seltzers. And I wonder if you drink less because your stomach gets filled up with bubbles. Like, I wonder if that, if the gas from this carbon dioxide, this is just completely out, off the top of my head, but. You know more than us. I mean, like, potentially it distends your stomach more and makes you not want to um, drink as much. That may be. Or maybe there's less. Could it be that because it's a regular 12 yeah. ounce can, there's less yeah. water in yeah. it? Probably, yes. Because of the gas. I'm yeah, a scientist. Yeah, yeah. No, Let's go. I mean, but definitely, I don't drink seltzer when I work out, but I drink it every other time. <laughs> sure. When I'm not working out. Can you drink too? Can you overdose on seltzer? No. More than one person asked me that. No, I don't think so. If, if you can, I, I haven't really been trying. Lock me up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I should be dead. Okay. Yeah, same here. Okay. What is popcorn lung? So... Again, digging deep. Get in there, girl. <laughs> um, it, basically, what I, I think what it is is you know chronic damage to the lung, not like COPD or emphysema from smoking, but it's more an inflammatory process. A lot of times, and again, I could be completely wrong, but it's um, related to exposures like occupational exposures, um, asbestos exposure. Um, it can cause uh, issues with scar tissue in the lungs and inflammation in the lungs that leads you to have kind of inflammation and wheezing and um, re reduce lung function. That would be my short answer. Because the streets say that it's caused by vaping. So, sorry, yes. So vaping, vaping can cause lung injury. Um, it's That's so scary to me. Yeah, so popcorn lung, I think to me, is just a general layman's term description for kind of lung damage. Okay. Um, but no... Pre-COVID, there was, I forget what it was, vaping-induced lung injury or yes. something. And we had a couple of people in the hospital that were pretty sick um, with it. Do you um, know what they were vaping? You no, don't know. No. Next time that happens, find out what they were vaping. I think nowadays. We haven't seen it recently. But I think a lot of times there was marijuana involved in okay. it. But, uh, I should get my lungs checked out then. Yeah. I mean, in the end, it's, it's just damage to the lungs related to um, the inflammation caused by the chemicals. And just constantly smizzing. Yeah. Mm. All right. I'm worried now. <laughs> All right. And I, honestly, potentially vaping has, the, the, what you're actually vaping has become less, I don't know if, it, if there's less preservatives or less chemicals or whatever. Potentially over the years that vaping has existed, they may have been able to do that. I, I don't know. They've gotten, it's gotten better. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Great. Sounds like an endorsement. <laughs> I won't quit today then. Um... Okay, what is the likelihood of pregnancy during the ovulation period? Um, I mean, there, there's always a risk. Um, sure. Because ovulation is when the egg is actually released, so yes, it's, there's always a risk. So when you're ovulating, I guess, for our listeners that are trying to have babies and listeners like me that are avoiding that, like the fucking plague, <laughs> what would that look like? Like... Is it a 10% chance of getting pregnant during ovulation with no protection and he's, you know, not taking the car out of the garage or like, can we talk, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Okay. I mean, I don't know because it just, because you don't really ever 100% know when you're ovulating. Like I know there's all those tests and things, but you know. And the apps and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you still don't 100% know. So the apps are also not accurate all the time. Yeah. They're How just, could they're, they be? They're doing it based on. The, the average human being, the average female. 28-day cycle. Yeah, yeah. So it's under the assumption that the user of the application has the 
extremely standard 20 yeah. day cycle. Which is not no deviations. Yeah, which is not typical. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So most people have what? I mean, everyone's, everyone, it varies. There's no such thing as most people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And everything or ovulation? Well, I mean. And a, a number of things, including ovulation, maybe? Yeah. There's no, there's a rule of thumb. Yeah. Rule of thumb helps us sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not real. Yeah. Huge. Okay. How long does sperm stay alive inside the body? Um... I want to say it's three days, but I'm not sure. It's okay. not a super long time. Ugh. Two to three days, maybe. Nice and warm vomit. All and right. if anybody Googles that and I'm completely wrong, great. Because, again, not something I've they don't kept. know. Yeah. No, don't. You got. You don't got to keep saying that. <laughs> we know you are. You. How long have you actually been a pra- beyond all of the extra schooling and residencies mm-hmm. and fellowship, whatever? Like coming up on 14 years. I graduated. I finished. I got my first real doctor job in July of 2009. No more selling yourself short, doctor. Well, I don't do that kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff sure. I don't take care of anymore. So. Right, right. Away from the sperm. You're no longer no, a sperm no, doctor. No. <laughs> Hung up the cleats on being a sperm doctor. All right. Well, that's. I would have done the same. Okay. For someone that is not sexually active, meaning it is not an STD, what could cause a mouth rash? Is there more specifics there? Like the listener that asked me about this and I actually talked about it. It's like a, it looks like a red ring inside their mouth, like inside. A, yep. Across the lip, like all the way around. Mm-hmm. It could be, well, I know you can get um, kind of a little fungal infection in the corners of your mouth. That's called chelitis. And you treat that with like antifungals, but that doesn't sound like what this is. And that's just it's not like a thrush situation. Yeah, no, it's just so. Could it be like an allergy? It could be. It could. It could be um, some sort of um, like canker sore situation. There's some diseases that can cause mouth ulcers. And and canker sores are is not herpes, right? No. That's a lack. I was always told it's like a lack of vegetables in your diet. Um, I honestly don't 100 know what causes them. I used to get canker sores inside my mouth as a child, and I would just like gargle with hot water and salt. Yeah. And it was when I was, my parents said it was because I wasn't eating enough vegetables. They, that was just their way of getting you to eat more vegetables. Okay. <laughs> they lied. Big surprise. Okay. So we're, we're going with allergy. All right. What are your thoughts on the diabetes injectables being used for weight loss? I mean, I think they're great. It's, it, I mean, I have, have multiple friends and patients that have used them that have actually lost weight Yeah. Um, on them. It's yeah. hard to get them paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't already have diabetes, it's really hard for insurance to pay for them, um, cause they're expensive, but no, I think, I think it's a, it's a good, it's a good option. When you stop taking it, you can gain the weight back. Um, you have to like, is that through eating habits that you gain the weight back or physiologically? No, it's, it's because you just, but from people that have, that I know that have taken it, basically your appetite gets less and you may be a little bit nauseous. Like I remember my mom was diabetic and she was on one of these years ago and I remember it made her very nauseous so mm-hmm. I think that that is part of the process is it actually makes you nauseous um so you don't want to eat um I don't is it think, like induced anorexia mm, I think you just you don't have the same like cravings that you would have otherwise the okay. same like desire but you you eat but you feel more full um before like you don't you don't have as much hunger you feel more full yeah but, but I think but I think when you stop it you don't 
regain the weight because you stopped it. You regain the weight because you just your habits have, are back. Yeah, you you never you you never got out of your own way. Like it was helping you, but you're still there when you get rid of it. You know your mm. your habits are still there. So um, you have a change the way you consume food. Okay, yes. all right, and maybe what you're eating. Yep. All right, so talk to us about beta blockers. Um. There are a lot of uses for beta blockers. So beta blockers, and correct me if I'm wrong, for our listeners that don't know, is a is it physiological st- stopping of stress responses? So it's if I'm feeling panicked, I take a beta blocker that physically makes my body calm down, like my heart rate, mm-hmm. my sweating, versus taking a benzodiazepine. So yeah. it doesn't affect the site, the yeah. brain. How, what am, what so am beta, I trying to say? Beta blockers actually are used as blood pressure medicine. Um, okay. I mean they're they affect the um, the heart rate. They lower your heart rate and they can lower your blood pressure. So that I think is how they control the physiologic response of anxiety versus the psychological. Yeah, like fear. Ben- benzodiazepines, they cut they off get your brain. brain. Yeah, okay. they attack. They attack. They they affect your brain. Uh-huh. The receptors in your brain. Do you think they're just as effective as benzodiazepines? Probably not. Stress? Probably not. Um, but I really think they they really just like cut the physiologic response to fear and anxiety and so you don't have that same sensation. Um, I know when you prescribe beta blockers to people for, you know, non-anxiety things like like blood pressure or, or atrial fibrillation or whatever, mm-hmm. um, sometimes you have to tell them you're gonna get kind of tired. You know, like it'll make you make you kind of kind of fatigued because mm-hmm. of that response. So someone that has like an addiction issue, yeah. that's a bit that's a good it would alternative. Be a good option, yeah. Okay. Cool. What are your what is your personal opinion and medical opinion on sleep medications? Uh, so Ambien used to be like the go-to for that. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, when I first started practicing, we would prescribe it routinely in the hospital, and we stopped. I, I don't really remember why we stopped or like when we stopped, but um, it's not common we see people on it anymore. It just causes so many weird side effects. Like what? Oh, like. It disrupts your, I think it disrupts your REM sleep of something. So people do bizarre, like it dis, it disconnects your physical body from your awareness. Like, so, oh god. So like, people sleepwalk and they drive. They they do all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, like a zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Or yeah. So, but often in the hospital, we're asked to prescribe sleep medicine for patients because you can't sleep in the hospital. And our go-to is melatonin. It um, doesn't do a whole lot. I take melatonin. Yeah. Um, some people it works great, but um, I take it. I stopped taking it over the last week. I started taking it one or two weeks in a row over the last month, but I hadn't taken it before. And when I first started taking it years and years ago. And I hadn't again for a long time, but sometimes if I take too much of it, I feel like I'm like on a painkiller. Yeah, yeah. No, I I take like, funny my when my daughter was like three or four years old, she would not go to sleep. Like we would close her door, we'd hear her playing in her room till like eleven o'clock. So we asked um, the pediatrician, "What can we do?" And they said, "Give her like a baby baby dose of melatonin. They make these um." like dissolvable ones mm-hmm. and so we we called it bedtime candy <laughs> um and and we did it and it was like a miracle the first night we did it I'm like she went to sleep and my husband has bad insomnia or used to have bad insomnia so that's where she got it from and now it's just kind of a routine and my son just kind of started taking it too and so like we're just a melatonin family I don't take it all the time and I notice when I take it it kind of takes the edge off of like my brain kind of going crazy yes. but it physically doesn't make me tired um, no it doesn't you're right. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. usually what we use in the hospital. And then there's some older, like, antidepressants like trazodone that we use in the hospital sometimes. But Okay. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in general, sleep meds are fine if you need them. But I would, you know, try not to take them every night. You know, 
try to pick the lowest dose you, you can get effect from, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so medical gaslighting. Mm-hmm. How it happens, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I've had some experiences. Other people I know have had some experiences. I, I'm assuming it's the Western training mm-hmm. that when I'm asking a question maybe about, you know, a certain level of pain or... Um, you know, a friend of mine couldn't feel anything in her hand and they were like, maybe you're making that up. When I told my endocrinologist that I was, I have Hashimoto's feeling better after not eating dairy. She was like, well, if it makes you feel better, I'm like, I'm (laughs) telling you, I lost seven pounds in a week of inflammation Mm because I didn't eat cheese for five days. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, (laughs) and so I, I, she said it three times and I think she was a physician's, physician's assistant or actually maybe I think she might have been in her residency now mm-hmm. that I'm thinking about it because she was an MD um that said I I didn't I'm not going to die on that hill but mm-hmm. I did you know I was like all right I'm not going to get yeah. the validation from this lady whatever so how what are your thoughts on that do you think it's a like if it's deviating at all from their training they can't speak to it is that what's happening well i don't i don't think it's true gaslighting i think honestly like there's a lot of things that's that, very gaslighting of you to say no. <laughs> there's a lot of things that have been developed since, since my training you know like there's a lot of things that have happened and been developed and, and things that we just don't know and there's also a lot of things that maybe in 10 years we'll, we'll say well oh yeah of course it's that. Well, of course it's said. the dairy yeah. yeah of course it was the dairy you know um i think it's just honestly i, th- I think because we we get that all the time in the hospital what if i did i heard that if i did xyz this would this would work and all we can speak to is really what we've learned in school yeah and and in kind of kind of continuing education it, it it's not great that it comes across as like dismissive honestly mm-hmm. but it is definitely I mean, I've been guilty of being like, I don't know, you know, sure, whatever, (laughs) you know, but in the end, like, we just don't know. We don't know everything about everything, and there's certainly things that could be helpful that we just, if we don't have a physiologic reason, we we, we all want to know why things work, you know, like, that's kind of the way my brain works. I want to know why, if I give you this medicine, why it will fix X, Y, and Z, you know, Um, and so when you when people come to us with, well, this may, this is supposed to help or whatever. It's just hard for us to, on the fly, know why. And so, and did you get that information from an Instagram influencer? Like, <laughs> we don't know, right? Like, yeah. And you can't, like, I read on the internet that blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It would be more the, negligent for you to say, I think they're right, yeah. out, without doing your own research. Exactly. No, I know. I mean, I, I can't tell you the, this, this is going to sound terrible, the number of times I've, in, in my head when somebody's like, well, I looked on Google and in my head, I'm like, why? What medical school did Dr. Google go to? Sure, sure, sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's definitely a thing that we, that we deal with, deal with. But again, it's because we don't want to be like, well, of course it's that. Right. You know, and sometimes if, if I think it's relevant, um, I'll say, you know, this is not scientifically proven, but in my mm-hmm. experience, so like sometimes I will, you kind of frame it yeah. that way. Yeah. But you're like, done a lot of work so I don't think like uh, internal I'm sure it comes across differently from other people sure not everyone has done like that the work on your emotional health and nature which is like another podcast that we can talk about later (laughs) so I think we so let's wrap that one up and maybe ask one more if that's okay Mm -hmm. you cool with that yeah okay how can we best advocate for ourselves with medical professionals that's a very good question um 
I mean, obviously there's a wide variety of medical professionals and there's a wide spectrum of the like very helpful, very nice, went into medicine to help people and went into medicine. And, this is and then there's the people that went into medicine to solve mysteries like you. Yeah. And then there's the people that went into medicine to make money. And, mm-hmm. and again, I think those people get weeded out through through a lot of um or they're the like trainings. plastic surgeons yeah. and they like went did their own thing yeah so i mean a lot of people those those people get get kind of weeded out through the training because you gotta really want it to go through what we go through mm-hmm. um but uh that calling yeah but i think just you know be prepared like if you're going to a doctor be prepared have your whatever records you need have your questions um and then just listen like be be, be respectful and listen to what they have to say and if you don't think you're getting what you need or you, you don't think that they're listening try somebody else honestly because mm-hmm. I mean there are there's good apples there's bad apples just like everywhere else every other profession um, in the world so I would I would say just come prepared and uh, and stand up for yourself and if you think things are not happening as they should then talk to somebody about it like I, I really because again our goal is to help people and to, to make people feel better you know that's our goal mm-hmm. and so we want you to advocate for yourself now as i discussed earlier about difficult families there are there are patients and families that go above and beyond in advocating for themselves and you have and, and that that's not what you're talking about but like to the point of pathology like pathologically like abuse basically treating treating medical providers as less than um mm-hmm. So that that's a whole other thing, but just to advocate the for people yourself, that are just nuts. That you're never gonna please that that yeah. The person, the Karen, who's a psychopath, basically who doesn't believe anything you say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in in a general situation, yes, just be prepared. You know, have your have the information, have the records that you need to show them if it's a specialist, and kind of have your questions written down, and just expect they may not have an answer for you. They may not. It may take a few visits to figure it out. Okay. Um, but again, if it's not if it's not a good fit, then don't keep going back. Okay. Yeah. So one more question, and then we'll get to the. So Sally's hopefully going to be on the show either via email answering questions or come back and, and do some more questions. So she will be a reoccurring guest, either you know bi monthly, quarterly, etc. So if we didn't get to your question, we will get to your question and continue, please, to submit them. But so our last question is, talk to us about long COVID and what that even is and like can we get some sort of update? So being an inpatient doctor, long COVID isn't something we typically deal with. Um, we deal with acute COVID, but I do know meaning like symptomatic. Meaning like you just caught it, you're sick, you're sick with it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're being treated for COVID. Um, we certainly over these last two years have had people come back in with other things who, who say they have long COVID. Basically, we just- Which is unprovable. No, it's not provable. And, and like I said earlier, in 10 years, we may be like, of course it's that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, COVID does a lot to your body. It does a lot to, it's, it's just the weirdest virus. It affects your heart. It's serious. It, it affects your lungs. It can affect your brain, you know. It, Damn. It, you know, it can cause a lot of things. And so we, the things that we, that I've heard people talk about is extreme fatigue that lasts longer than the actual illness, um, like mm-hmm. weeks and weeks. Wow. Like having to take naps when you don't usually take naps. Um, and we don't know, like, when long COVID or why long COVID affects one certain person. It's not just an old person no. that gets long There's COVID. There's kids that have it. Like yeah. I've, I've seen stories of kids that have it or teenagers, young adults, old people. And what's long COVID meaning? Like how long? 
We don't know. No idea. Six months? Months. Yeah, months maybe. Um, but I think it's it's not like the respiratory symptoms, the fevers, the chills. It's not that. It's other physiologic symptoms. Like some people will get developed like persistent high heart rate from it. Like I know when I had COVID, I had a heart, my heart rate was a little higher than normal. Um, and I had less like endurance kind of going down the stairs, that kind of thing. But it went away when I was better. But some people keep that for a while. Right. Um, and then the brain fog that can stick around for a while too like brain it's it's a real thing we don't know why it happens but like certainly we've had i've had patients that just don't feel quite right mentally mm -hmm. for for several weeks but i think in the end we just don't know how it interacts with all the organs yet and the immune system and i'm sure there'll be lots of studies on it i know there's long COVID clinics that have popped up like uh academic centers like unc and duke just kind of and i'm sure there it's a combination this is just a guess of like uh uh, like a, an internist like me, potentially like a physical medicine and rehab doctor to like deal with the kind of weakness and fatigue, um, potentially um, a cardiologist. I, I don't know, but but yeah, it's it's definitely it's a thing. I don't Just an array of people that yeah, kind of looking into it. Yeah, and it, it, it affects every part of your body. It yeah, sounds like. and it, it causes an inflammatory reaction, and that's initially when COVID first happened. That's why people got so sick, is their body like it, the inflammation was so bad that and that's like one of the treatments we used to give was like a anti-inflammatory medicine that we give for like inflammatory bowel disease or psoriasis or things like that one of the things it was called tocilizumab that we would give in the icu for covid when you were really sick and it shuts down your it calms down your immune system mm -hmm. so that that is a lot of the the long covid may be related to the immune system just remaining activated so when you say calms calms down your immune, when you say calms down your immune system, what does that mean? Like makes you more susceptible to illness? Um, no. So your body can have a, an extreme reaction to an infection and cause like all these hormones and cytokines and things to re be released, and your body kind of freaks out and goes crazy and haywire. And it's What's like a, a cytokine. So it's like a chemical released by a cell. Okay. So that's when it's like weird symptoms. Like yeah. all of a sudden I grew a hair in my ear. Yeah. Like weird, okay. Yeah, so it's um, it's uh, basically, we, again, we don't know why, but it, it seemed to activate the immune system some and cause a bigger inflammatory response than just a lung issue. Mm -hmm. um, and that is what made people so sick initially. And I'm not sure, I, I assume that since people have been vaccinated um, and every time we get a new variant, it's like a dumber variant. It seems like, like every it's, it's less and less potent and okay. less and less severe. Like we're not seeing people dying from COVID right now. Like that's not happening. We're seeing people come in with other illnesses and happen. Oh, you're positive for COVID. You know, we're not even going to oh. treat you. Yeah, no, okay. we're not seeing a lot of sick people with COVID. They're in the hospital for other things, um, and okay. they just have. We're still testing everyone that comes into the hospital, so we catch a lot of. God, what a fucking nightmare. Asymptomatic positives. Um, Thank you for doing that. No problem. Like working through COVID as a doctor must have been horrendous. It was. Was there anything worse? Is um, the worst thing you've you've experienced so far in your career? Probably. Mm. Yep. It's lasted forever. Yep. The hazmat suit time. Oh yeah. Washing your groceries down. We never that? I never did that, but I did like I was never psycho about it. Mm -hmm. I really wasn't. And I, but I know people very close to me were freaking oh, me the fuck out. I mean I, I would change clothes before I left work. Um, I would change clothes when I came home and sh would shower. I would shower when I came home. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, I um, didn't do that. I, my shoes still don't come into the house. They probably never should have. But after COVID, they, they stay in the garage. <laughs> Smart. Um, I used to wipe down my car inside, like the seat of my. Yeah, like it was. 
We didn't, we just know. didn't know. We didn't know. But that's not how COVID is. It's only through breathing. No, it's really, you have to like, somebody has cough just on coughed somebody. on something and then you, you lick Touch it or something. It. Okay. You know? like it, it's really, it's not, it doesn't come off of things. It, it's breathing. Okay. Yeah, it's breathing, coughing. Yeah. Close contact. Awesome. Well, this is, has been so awesome, Sally. Thank you so much, Dr. Sally. No problem. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah. And um, we're going to meditate for a few minutes. If you have more questions, submit them. Uh, like, follow, share, and review this podcast. And again, always very humbled and grateful that anyone wants to, you know, be on me, be on the uh, this journey with me. So super grateful for it. And uh, we're going to meditate. Hold tight.
thank you for all of the peace growth in my life. I'm so honored to be alive. I'm so grateful to be here now. 